you know, Zach and I get a lot of pushback for that. So I just kind of want to, I wanted to have, I, I floated the idea to Zach. I said, do you think William Ramsey would come on my show and we could just sort of have a, a long form sort of discussion like that with, a, with an occult authority? And so Zach, uh, you know, floated that out to you and here we are. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I would say I've definitely done a lot of studying of Alistair Crowley. I'm kind of going over his stuff again right now. I'm still working on projects, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, I mean, if you use him for an example, you can go through and use people that uh, are well, you know, kind of well known and definitely have this uh, occult life and they put it into their films and their artwork and uh you can talk about underground musicians. You can talk about well-known pop figures. I mean, it's all there. It's actually, you're, I would say almost that you're kind of swimming in occultism if you look at modern world culture. Yeah, but that's really the norm. It goes from the top to the bottom, from the yeah. the the, uh, the most underground uh, art style all the way to the biggest, most successful, famous filmmakers in the world. Right, and uh, so we're gonna we're gonna dig into that, and we're gonna talk about that. But I want to kind of set this up a little bit before we do. Um, a lot of my, I, I kind of keep I keep my my personal life kind of private. I don't talk a lot about my life or my childhood, but I want to kind of divulge this a little bit, set this up, kind of frame it, because it's something I've heard my entire life. And William, I think you're going to shatter this uh, this ridiculous notion uh, as we as we sort of battle through this. But let me set this up. When I was when I was uh, nine or ten years old, my, my family went through a radical transformation into born again born again Christians, and I spent my uh, like early uh, prepubescent years in uh, in a in a very intense Pentecostal church. Uh, have you guys, Zach, have you ever been to a Pentecostal church? There's actually a Pentecostal church very close to my house, but I've never been to one. It's got some kind of uh, connotations I don't like. like I, I'm not really on board with a lot of their theology, but uh, they're, they're all around here. In the the theology is never really, I've never felt like the theology was super radical, uh, but the, the, the services are just intense. William, have you ever attended a, a Pentecostal church? Um, I watch them online, and uh, yeah. definitely not of, you know not of my taste, but pretty intense. Talk speaking in tongues. Oh yeah, I'm talking. I'm talking. Yeah, middle-aged women in heels running laps around the pews, screaming in tongues, falling on the ground, going into convulsions. They have these like they have these like modesty blankets that they throw over you when you uh, when you collapse into tongues. And I and I myself as a as a 10, 11, 12, 13 year old. Would, uh, would speak in tongues until I was exhausted some nights. My, my family had me in church uh, three nights a week, Wednesday night, Saturday night, Sunday morning, and Sunday night. And this, this went on for several years. And as I, as I um, sort of hit my teenage years and puberty and everything, I really started to rub out against that. I mean, the, you know, my, uh, my public school you know, friends and stuff, they had no idea. Like, they didn't understand that culture at all. And I got, I just eventually got really weirded out by all of it. And I, and I eventually rebelled so hard that I, uh, I had a buddy in high school that was really into metal music and stuff. This was the, this was the mid to late nineties. So we started getting into uh, Marilyn Manson and Nine Inch Nails, and some really dark stuff. It was like hardcore about it. Like I wanted to go to the sort of opposite end of the, of the spectrum. And we ended up getting into uh, Levian Satanism. My friend bought me the Satanic Bible by Anton Levay. I'm sure you're familiar with all that. William Schoenhaus. Yeah, this was a 1960s sort of pop anti-religious movement that included uh, 
Jimmy Stewart. Well, no, not Jimmy Stewart. What was his? Um, what was the? Um, there were there were a few. Jane Mansfield was a was a member of the Black Guy. Uh, part yeah. of that. What was his name? Yeah, that's what I, thought, I was yeah, going to say. Jimmy Stewart. That's not Jimmy Stewart. It's, uh, uh, I know we're talking about. Yeah, anyway, there's a, there was a, not, a, not a huge ton of celebrities that followed him, but quite a few um, people followed Anton LaVey. And so I, I ended up reading the Satanic Bible, and then he also released another book. of Sammy, Sammy, Sammy Davis Jr. Sammy Davis Jr., right. And uh, so a lot of people don't know that, because Sammy Davis Jr. was really, really popular. He was also a Satanist. He was a practicing LaVeyan Satanist. And so I bought, I bought, I read, bought the Satanic Bible, read cover to cover probably ten times. Uh, he, uh, Anton LaVey released a book of essays called Satan Speaks. And I also read those, and I kind of like this, like rebellious, like uh, you know, human nature is the, is where is where the power of of, uh, of humanity lies, and 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 really, you know, it was just kind of one of those. I just wanted to get really far away from church kind of things. But it was when my buddy that first introduced me to Satanism, because uh, I didn't, I didn't buy into the whole. Like, if we're going to talk, if like if Satan's real and and Jesus Christ is real, and one of them is offering us the kingdom of heaven for eternity, and the other is offering us damnation and torture in hell for eternity, why would you go with? Satan, right? And, it, and it's always been explained, and this is a recurring theme that we'll, we'll get to here, it's always been explained to me that Satanists don't really believe in Satan. They're, they're just doing, they're just performing these Satanic rituals uh, for funsies, for the lulls, and that none of this is real. They don't really believe in demonic spirits, even though they, part of the, like, the, there's another book that Anton LaVey wrote called The Satanic Rituals. And most of the rituals involve invoking the names of demonic spirits to give you power here on earth. And it was when my buddy really started to get into the ritual side of Satanism that I had to get away from it. By this time, I was about 20 years old, and I was like, you know, man, I like the whole, like, rebellious Satan as a real thing, but why are we going to wear capes and, like, um, and light black candles and, 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 like, pray to the to the names of demonic spirits if none of that's real? And it was explained right. to me that, like, well, you're supposed to, like, try to trick yourself into thinking it is real. It's a psychological game where you, if you believe that demons give you special, you know, treatment and, and change change things to give you money, give you power, give you women. Well, you'll just sort of do that on your own because you, you kind of tricked yourself into believing that demons provided those things for you. And that just makes no sense to me. It didn't even make any sense to me as like a troubled teenager that was into heavy metal music and trying to like rebel against Pentecostal church. So I got away from that. And, uh, and very, right around that time, I, I saw the HBO series um, Paradise Lost. The first one, and and I saw in in Damien Eccles, I saw a kid just like me, right? This uh, heavy metal rebellious kid was into uh, Satanism and Alistair Crowley, but not really, but not really, right? What does that documentary teach you? The documentary, you know, tries to tries to drive the audience to the opinion that, well, yes, he he is an occultist. Yes, he he writes in Enochian, in Enochian keys or whatever, uh, and, and yes, he, uh, he, he's read uh, Alistair Crowley books front to back, but he doesn't really, and, and yes, these were satanic murders of three innocent children, but not really. I mean, it was probably turtles that, that did these. That, that, he was just that, a dabbler. He was just, he was just a dabbler, and, and, none of that stuff, yeah. and none of that stuff's real anyway. Right. And so I, and I started to like notice this pattern in occultism where it's like, you go into this really intense direction and then 
pull it back and say, oh, but it's just for funsies. And that's sort of where me and Zach lately have been having these conversations with our buddies because it's, as you well know, William, it's, uh, it, you know, the, the veil has been sort of pulled back on occultism. You have like the, the, this woman, what is the woman's name that the, the spirit cooker, the uh, occultist, Karina Abramovich. Yeah. Who has direct ties to, um, to Hillary Clinton and to, uh, John Tedesco. Yeah. And, and, and our friends will be, Oh, she's just a, she's just a performance artist. None of that's real. And it's like, all these things start to add up. And it's like, you know, uh, once, once Damien Eccles was released from prison, I was like a supporter of the West Memphis Three for years. I even met uh, Jason Baldwin at a convention, and I had a, I had a really intense conversation with him. It ended in kind of tears, like the two of us crying because I thought he was innocent. And then uh, the more I paid attention to Damien, and, and the like, weirder and creepier that guy, his public persona has become since he's been out of jail. Uh, the analogy I like to use is like, if I was falsely imprisoned for running over pedestrians with an ice cream truck, the last thing I would do if I was let out of jail on a technicality is soup up an ice cream truck and, and street race it uh, and, and videotape myself on the internet doing it. It's like, getting, getting out of jail after 18 years, the last thing I would do if I was Damien Eccles was was uh, pledge my allegiance to occultism and start writing occult spell books and, and tattoo Enochian symbols all over my over, all over my body and stuff. It's like, dude, you were, you were convicted of, a, of an occult child murder. Yeah, I mean, it, it, the, the, you know, the leopard didn't change its spots, so to speak, right? Nothing ever changed. It was all everything that they said before turned out to be the case after, right? Right. But he's still, I mean, the guy's still doing classes. I mean, he just did a video about Alistair Crowley last week that was published, so he hasn't changed much. Yeah, I mean, it's it's not, yeah. Look at all Yeah, there are really deep, heavy-duty um, occult satanic tattoos he has that the public doesn't know about. Like, I don't know if it's yeah. But one of the creepiest parts about that is so do the filmmakers of the Paradise Lost series, right? Well, I know that. Right? He has the Theban alphabet tattoo, which is, you know, Thebes is the, the epicenter or where magic kind of came through in Greece. You know, the Theban. So the Theban alphabet's there with the sigil. And a lot of these guys have gotten that matching tattoo. Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp. Uh, right. Uh, Peter Jackson. I think uh, Dave Navarro, maybe some of these other guys have, you know, they've emulated him and mocked bodies, but yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, you could say that maybe they're just doing that because he's their buddy and he told them to, and they don't know what it means, but all this stuff adds up to some pretty, I mean, you have to be pretty dense to just believe this is all coincidence. Yeah. The, guy, the guy that was in jail for, for child, for ritualistically killing children was totally innocent. He just happens to have a cult symbols tattooed on him. And the guy that, the, the Peter Jackson, the guy that literally his millions of dollars is the only reason those guys got out of jail was because they, they had more money than the state of Arkansas to fight the case. Right, fight it out of court. Right, fight it out of court. But I mean, then the, the suspicion, you know, they raised somewhere between 10 and $20 million. The suspicion is that Peter Jackson bankrolled most of it. So, like, his, his multi-millions, you know. That's pretty clear. I mean, that's pretty clear from the, from the extremely crazy biased documentary he made, West of Memphis. Right. Which is just like a Damien Eccles, like, crazy, culty love letter. It's just a bunch of celebrities endorsing Damien Eccles and his weird occult stuff, right? 
Yeah, it's bad. I mean, it promotes this turtle theory, which is uh, what I wrote in my book, Abomination. I said it was a joke because it can't fit into the facts of the case, you know, because, uh, you know, one of the kids was really grievously injured, and you'd have to think that the, if the turtle caused the injury, that means that somebody committed the crime with a turtle present while the child was alive. It was really bad. So, yeah, it's just like that movie, and then they caught these two guys who were convicts in jail and come out of the woodwork saying that there was some uh, dark secret with Hobbes and it was a family secret. It's like triple hearsay. Hey, when you really critically think about the case and all the facts, and you know the facts of the case, a lot of these are just obviously facile, absurd positions to take publicly, but I think that the public uh, has a hard time discerning between actual real facts and evidence and propaganda, PR. Yeah, it was a it was a real uh, mind twister for me when I when when they were when all that kind of stuff was going on and, and the third um, uh, Paradise Lost movie came out because the second movie focuses entirely on John Mark Byers. Right. And well, they, they, they say in that second documentary they are hundred percent certain that John Mark Byers did it. They concocted an entire they concocted an entire um, like fictitious scenario where he uh, he got his teeth. Yanked out of his right. head. If there were two te- te- teeth impressions on the children's bodies, exactly. That was that was it. Like, that here's, was it. Here's, here's the problem: is why doesn't anybody ever bring that up? Why doesn't everybody say they change? They change their stories. Baldwin and Eccles both change their story. From now, they're just insinuating that Hobbs did it. Yeah, you know, that's why. You know, that's important. When that third movie came out, and I was like, "Oh, this is the movie that's going to kind of document their journey," you know, to to getting out of jail. But then it turned to Hobbs. It was like, hold on, you spent an entire feature film, feature-length documentary, setting up the other stepdad. Now you just want to go 180 degrees towards the other stepdad. It makes the it, it the third movie takes the it destroys the credibility of the other two films because it shows the filmmaker bias that it's like the the filmmakers the opinion the filmmakers hold is. Anybody but the West Memphis Three did this. Anybody we could possibly pin this on, that's who did it. Well, I mean, you go back to the court case. You know, somebody, there were a whole family that saw Echoes on the scene, muddy. Nobody saw buyers uh, or Hobbs that were muddy. Somebody would have had to have got down in the wire and mud. I mean, it just goes there was admissions. Nobody's ever admitted uh, other than the three of all made admissions. Um, about doing the crime in different circumstances. Right. So you got Jesse Miskelly. Nobody ever read research this case. Bob Ball, for example, supposedly is a seasoned investigator, but he just ignores facts out of the whole clock, right? So he doesn't even bring up post-conviction confessions, the fact that Damien Eccles uh, said he would tell them the whole story if he talked to his mom, then he clammed up, he failed a lie detector test. There's all kinds of things that just leave out casually. So, um, it's just really an incredible event, an incredible saga and story. But they didn't get out on a technicality. They pled guilty again. It's a very rare criminal case. So they're actually guilty twice. They were found guilty by two separate juries, and then they went and signed on the documents. Today. They're still under probation until next year. Right. They signed the documents that said there was enough evidence to convict them if they got tried again. <laughs> with the best attorneys available. They didn't yeah. have state-appointed attorneys or anything like that. They, one, they, thing that one thing that I've heard you bring up, too, on, on different uh, podcasts is that they have had an opportunity to present all of this DNA evidence that, they're, that their side claimed to have that they were going to present in court if they were ever tried again, and that 
DNA evidence has never been right. It's never been publicly seen, right? That's it's never empty envelope check, man. I've got this check for a million dollars in this envelope. I'm gonna cash it. Well, go cash it then. Oh, why? Well, you know, I'm the problem. Like if I got convicted of running a red light and I had evidence to prove that I didn't do it, I would be. I would be hustling my for my day in a court of law where I could show conclusively that I didn't do it. These yeah. guys have been involved in the most heinous crime possible, but they don't seem to ever want to prove it in court. They just want to prove it in the court of public opinion. So when everybody, anybody bandies about that whole thing about the DNA, I just say, well, where's the proof? Why don't you just go take it in court and just have it rubber to have it stamped? What really got stamped about that whole case is that it was appealed to the Supreme Court of Arkansas, completely different form, right? Not this so-called rigged hillbilly moonshine swirling KKK members, but it went to the Supreme Court of Arkansas and they verified everything the lower court did. Nobody ever mentioned that either. <laughs> so yeah, and if you're writing, you can go. Decision of Arkansas Supreme Court West Memphis Three. You can read it yourself. I don't know if you uh, if you uh, followed this part of the case or not. I don't know if I've heard you talk about it, but when they were first released from jail, Jason did a couple of interviews where he kind of said he was he was kind of um, manipulated by uh, by Damien's attorneys, told that his his teeth were so bad he was going to die of infection if he didn't get out. And Jason has publicly said many times that he would have rather stayed in jail for the rest of his life to prove his innocence than to sign that Alfred plea, but Damien's side convinced him to do so, and then now, and I, don't, I don't know what their relationship is now, but at the time that he made those statements, he wasn't on speaking terms with, with Damien. Damien had signed some producer deals for some films, The Devil's Not, and the West of Memphis uh, movies, and Jason was kind of boxed out of all that, and he, he felt like he was lied to, like when, when they appeared in court that day, Damien was fine. There was nothing wrong with him physically. Yeah, he was. Well, he keeps saying that he had teeth problems and that he healed them through Reiki, right, or like magical hand stuff. So he said that too. But there's no evidence of him being beaten in jail. There's, you know, he keeps telling these sob stories of like the rats were coming in. You know, and there's just no evidence of any of that stuff. There's nothing that he ever did, uh, or ever like. There's no evidence of some complaint made against the system for him getting beat up every day. But you know, the, the funny thing about that story is that he's locked in solitary confinement 23 hours a day. So how is that happening? You know, that's just, it's just absurdity on, laid on absurdity. But I don't think Jason and, and Eccles are really friends. I don't think I've seen pictures of them hanging out. That's what I mean. They they went, like, Jason, the yeah. ways, separate, separate ways. And, yeah. and they're no longer friends. I haven't followed these guys in a long time. It was only when Zach, uh, Zach kind of turned me on to your book, Abomination, that uh, that I sort of kind of rekindled my interest in the case, and I, it, it, I haven't really there hasn't really been much movement on anything in years, has there? Just kind well, of no, the 2011, yeah, no, nothing really as far as I mean. I think the case itself. I think that they're they're. I mean, in a legal sense, they're currently guilty at law, and there's nothing else to do. There's just a bunch of public court of public opinion manipulation taking place. There's nothing really happening in the court. It's uh, it's done. They're out. Um, you know, so I think that that was the real injustice is letting letting them out of jail. Uh, you know, I think that they, I think I don't know how much more time Miss Kelly and Baldwin had to spend, but they had already put in eighteen years. So, absolutely, and this I didn't mean to get this deep into the woods on the West Memphis Three, but, but it all it all kind of points back to Aleister Crowley. It all points back to occultism and. and 
Yeah, it turned out that all of those things that they tried to deflect from or looked in were really the core issue, you know? I, I, if, if anything, if anything uh, Damien spent those 18 years in jail just becoming more obsessed with Aleister Crowley and occultism in general, right? Well, he said he was practicing magic for hours and hours and hours a day, so he, he turned that whole thing into his own kind of like you know, magical studio or abbey or something like that. So that's, you know, and I did look at his books. That was, you know, they forgot to pay their payment on a storage unit in Arkansas and a guy bought it and went through all the books. And there's all these books on occultism just stacked in the thing with tons of notes scribbled in them. So all the evidence shows. And, you know, the interesting thing about this new video that Eccles did is he actually admitted to being in the AA, the Astrum Argentum, which was really a curly magic kind of a magical training guide but it's kind of very specific it's a very strange group that exists but you don't actually meet everybody you just have one person who you answer to and they train you and it's all anonymous online and i mean that's the way it became and that's the way early organized it. it wasn't like the oto which which uh echoes admitted to being in as well but nobody seems to ever think is important you know he has his own library in arkansas named after him through the oto chapter so uh, you know, these things are, you know, people are, are peeling back the onion. Once you look at it all, it all fits. The, the real puzzle, when you fit it together, is like occultism writ large. That's the puzzle. That's the so, yeah. Oh, and that's the core of all of his celebrity supporters in, in Hollywood as well. I, mean, I didn't know anything about Johnny Depp or some of these other characters, but you really start looking into them. You look at Johnny Depp's films, uh, they're incredible. The Ninth Gate. Uh, well, so that's actually what we really want to get into as uh, going on about the movies is because uh, the other show, it's not Kevin's show, but he's basically a part of the, the Quiet Place. He comes on pretty much every weekend. And we talk a lot with the main dude, Jeremy, about this topic of, like, you know, satanic influences or outright symbols in film. And it's always a point of contention as to how these things actually affect the viewer. Like, can they possibly not affect the viewer, or is there always going to be an effect? I'm of the opinion. Huh? No, I'm of the opinion that there's always going to be some kind of effect because you know if you're creating an art object and you're not doing it for the will of God, the goodwill you're going to be doing it in some maybe indirect or maybe, you know, uh, not conscious. Uh, you'll be working on the, uh, the other side of the wheel. And even if it's not like a direct happens like right now type of thing, it's I think it's kind of pulling you further and further away from the goodwill to where we're at now. I mean, there's all kinds of horrible messages in movies and uh, it's not hard to you know figure out how those can hurt people, but like the concrete symbols that you see, like you know from the seeing eye to all the you know, thirty threes and everything, how do those things affect people, or are they simply like stamps that these occultists are somehow you know at the top of the chain in the movie industry, you know they're putting on uh, putting them in the movies like. Just say, hey, I'm here. This is what I'm doing. Like, what, what's the purpose behind it? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think that that would take a long time to truly impact. But I think that the real kind of occultists who leave that stuff there, it's an inside kind of, uh, 
you know, waking a nod to fellow people where the uninitiated have no idea what they're doing. So the hand signs and all that stuff and the symbols, the numerology, uh, those are all things. And I think that like in, in, in depth's position, a lot of this is kind of like beautifying you. Like if you look at From Hell, some of these other story, you know, things that he was involved in, I mean... Wasn't from how wasn't wasn't the graphic novel from how written by an occultist? Yeah, it was more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Al Moore. Yeah. Al Moore. So Al Moore. He's, he's an about occultist too, right? He said he says he spends just as much time writing novels uh, as he spends on doing magical stuff. He's a self-professed magician, a wizard, warlock, or whatever. He says it himself. So, and those are all interspersed throughout his novels and the symbolism, the smiley face. In uh, Watchmen and all that stuff, it's it permeates and has permeated through the kind of transgressive fiction. Actually, if you go look at Chuck Palahniuk and all these other guys, they're familiar with the symbolism. So, uh, if you look at Fight Club and all that stuff, these are I mean, you're being subjected to something, and a lot of people know what they're being subjected to, and then the public just looks at it mysteriously. I'll use for a perfect example is two thousand one, a space odyssey where. Kubrick and Clark created this monolith, you know, this very mysterious monolith that the public's looking at it going, what is this mysterious monolith? Does it have to do with evolution? That whole movie is an incredible mystery, but if you start reading Clark's books, you start realizing the illuminated numerology that he's putting in there. I mean, the, the, the monolith is 11 feet tall. I mean, it's just all these uh, things that reference back through Western esotericism. And then they were very brilliant guys, very smart book pedophiles. I mean, at least in Cooper's case, alleged, Clark is, has said he was. Um, that seems to be one of the main themes of this sort of, uh, this sort of shadowy uh, occult Illuminati organization is, is pedophilia seems to be one of the main sort of activities or pastimes of these people and what what is what is the reason behind that is there do they believe there's power and i think it's like yeah i think it's power and corruption i don't think you know i think that there's a lot like welcome to my world that things going on i'm corrupt i can do what i want and to do with that world principle so i think there's a lot of other things involved i mean Crowley himself i mean i think he's in his own writings has exposed himself as that so you know you guys are all you don't really know the totality of where who's going through the masonic system or the post-masonic system but you can you can tell by their symbols you know they leave it there and they expect people not to know it or they want to acknowledge it so um i've, I've seen that i've seen guys like alex jones that'll say things like uh, they'll say that part of the sort of in order to gain power from the uh from uh, occult magic you have to present yourself to the public without and try and try to do so without being seen so this kind of stuff gets put into music and it gets put into comic books and it gets put into movies because that's sort of part of the situation or the uh, or the ritual of uh, gaining magical power is through presenting through presenting or revealing yourself to the public, but in clever ways that they don't know what you're, what they're even seeing. Yeah, for you think there's validity to that? I think that's part of it. I think it's also the fact that they can really structure these things and get away with it. It also increases the power of the event.
Now, do you believe in occult magic? Do you believe this is real? Because again, our friends will tell you, our friends will say, well, it's all aesthetic. Like, just because they like this symbolism and think that occultism is neat, doesn't mean anybody really believes that it's uh, real magical power. I think that these people do definitely believe they, they're getting certain responses or things that happen by doing these things, yes. So I think that, I mean, it, it, yeah, I mean, you look at these guys, they definitely have something beyond the, something paranormal is happening to a lot of these people. Without question, I don't think they're even inventing it. I don't think it's aesthetic. I don't think that's it. I think something outside of themselves is happening, whether they're just getting totally ramped up on drugs or whatever. Um, but I think that there, there's something, you know, paranormal going on with some of these people, and some of these people are getting response. So, and they wouldn't be practicing it with such detail except to get something that would facilitate change in conformance with their will if they want to get power and whatever. So I think really, if you look at like the Alamantra working and all these different workings, strange things happen, man. How does this guy know what a big-headed alien is in 1918 in New York City? I mean, wrote it down before this whole phenomenon or other reports of other people, maybe they're carrying on that tradition, but... Yeah, that aspect is so weird because of the Crowley connection with Jack Parsons and then their connection to the Roswell crash. All that stuff, man. And, you know, these guys are all, what's the battle I'm working? And I mean, people who are very far up in Scientology said that Albert was a war. was like, uh, you know, well, like he could raise spirits. I mean, this, there's some intense stuff going on. That's, you know. I've never heard this before. Explain this to me. What is the connection between occultism and aliens? Well, um, so... Uh, there's the so-called gray alien, right? The whole episode is this kind of big-headed creature, and that's this kind of thing that's come up through uh, communion and all that stuff. Well, Crowley drew exactly that same type of entity in 1918 in New York. He called it Lamb, L-A-M. And actually, some of his followers, yeah, it's, I mean, some of these rituals, man, they believe they're talking to something else out there. So, um, they think that this happening. I don't tinker around with that stuff. I don't even meddle with it. I don't. I don't that, well, I think that's why they do it. Yeah, I guess the next, like the next place I want to take this is why would you? Like, how does how does Crowley? Because Crowley is clearly like the epicenter of all this. He's he's sort of the uh, he I guess literally wrote the book on uh, magical power, like occult uh, occult magic. So how does how does Crowley sell the the practitioner, like the, the wannabe practitioner, I, you could have uh, some some influence on your life. Um, you're obviously you're not going to be flying or floating or living forever. Or you're not going to achieve immortality. You're not going to. You can do some things. You can you can influence reality in some ways through occult magic. Not a whole lot. Maybe you can gain power and influence and fame. Maybe, but you're going to curse your uh, eternal spirit forever. Uh, but he, you know, he never talked about that. He didn't really have a solution for, you know, dying or anything like that. So Crowley himself, uh, those were blank spots in his teachings. It was all about here and now. Yeah, there's the answer lies in the fact, going back to the will thing, they're exercising some kind of control on your will, even if it all leads to destruction. It's like once they kind of get you, you're, because I, I personally do not believe we are completely free. So if they're, I don't either. I don't either. Yeah, if they're putting enough of that stuff in your head, 
you're going to start going down that path, and then perhaps it is a supernatural draw at that point. It's like you step over the threshold, and it kind of has you. And, you know, that's kind of like, because uh, when you get baptized, you get the Holy Spirit, and that's supposed to guide you through your life. This is like a perverted reversal of that, where they're offering you the world, basically, right. and offering you the ability to be free or temporarily free from the uh, repercussions of being a complete degenerate. And it's so temporary, though. Like to me, that that's a, such an imbalanced trade. Well, it's such it also plays on rationality because they're doing things for people. Like you know, you can see this, you can touch this, you can. You know, do whatever crazy sexual act you want to and rape as many people as you want to. And this is what they give you because, you know, the whole basis of Christian faith is that everything's kind of unseen. You're having faith in what's unseen. These people are just giving you things like, you know, if someone's completely lost in a sensate worldview, they're going to take that path, and it's sad. I mean, I think that's why you see so many people get it, particularly so many social climbers who want the most of the world. Right, right. So it's very worldly, worldly results. And I think Crowley and Hubbard and Scientology all have that same kind of uh, promise or temptation that it goes back to biblical Garden of Eden. You can be a god. That's the problem. That's the promise. So you know, and I guess the the reason why we see this so prevalently in Hollywood and in politics is because those are people with a lust for power and a lust for fame, and they'll basically do anything to get there. And this is a pathway. No question. This is a pathway. I mean, it probably always existed even before Crowley, right? So whoever, whatever magician or anything like that. I mean, you can go back and look at. Jules Uriah, I don't know if you know who he is, he was like a 16th century magician, and he had all these magicians, he had tons of money, and he was like, going on a t- he was a mass murderer of kids, man, it was incredible. So he, you know, have you ever looked at Jules Uriah? No. Yeah, look at him, look at Jules Uriah. Actually, clearly did a lecture, it's, he's from France, he was from Western France, but uh, he had that same temptation, worldly power. And uh, he was actually behind Joan of Arc. He was actually the Marshal of France, which is kind of like their uh, head of their military at the time. And he was the one supporting Joan of Arc and also involved in just the darkest stuff, man. Yeah, all these sorcerers and stuff around him. So really interesting how, you know, and it goes all the way back to, I think you can look at it in a biblical context. I don't think that, you know, if you... If Scientology is promising people that they can have the power of a god, which it supposedly is the promise of Scientology, then you're right back at the original biblical temptation, right? Right. Let's uh, let's talk about the OTO. We talk about Crowley. We talk about, and that's that's an organization that Crowley himself founded. No, so it was a German organization. It was found. It was these guys are all into post Masonic stuff. So they come through Masonry like Crowley, and then go to the Golden Dawn, and then they start their own thing. Well, that. In Germany, the post-Masonic, one of the post-Masonic groups was the OTO, Ordo Templi Orientis, claiming ancestry genial, ideological genealogy through uh, Jacques de Molay and the Templars, right? So that's the Templars. And the Templars supposedly brought back all of this weird ritual stuff, including Baphomet, from the Middle East, right? Okay. The, the Templars, that the, I don't know if people know, the Templars were like, protectors of pilgrimage routes to Jerusalem and uh, became really the first international bankers 
You didn't have to actually transform gold. You could actually take a writ in Jerusalem and take that back to Paris and turn that writ in, and they give you the same amount of gold. So it's pretty fascinating. So they became very wealthy through that. You have to pay a fee. And uh, that's where we get the Friday the 13th, because the king of France at the time coveted Jacques de Molay's money. And uh, on the Friday the 13th, he, he basically massacred them. But anyway, the OTO is from that. But it's also, you know, they have their own kind of ritual. Scrolly became the head of the OTO in 1925. He was actually traveled to Germany. And um, they made him the head of the OTO. Which he was the head of the, of the British faction. How influential, you know, I don't even know. But uh, he had a meeting with the head of the OTO, Royce. And they, they apparently he showed up at Crowley's door and said, you're stealing my material. But they had kind of come up with the same kind of magical conclusions together. When Crowley became the head of the OTO, he was its head until 1947 when he died. He integrated all this stuff into their teachings, including the Book of the Law and a lot of his ideas, all his holy books and rituals and things like that. So um, that's really the OTO, and it's still around. I mean, they're still... I was going to say, yeah, this is an organization that still exists to this day, right? And there, there are current sort of pop culture figures that uh, pledge allegiance to this occult group, right? Yeah, I mean, some that are alleged to be involved. There's people on my books. If you look at the reviews on my one-star reviews of my books, there's a lot of these guys on there who are insulting me on guys from uh, Portland chapter and stuff like that. So yeah, the OTO is still out there. It's still yeah, I actually met a guy who was in the OTO. I think I talked about him with you on your podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm not going there with names because he's like, you know, a normal dude. He's not like a public figure or anything. But uh, I met him when I did that. Uh, it was like a writing workshop mm-hmm. when I was 16 or so. But he told me a little bit about it. He's not in it anymore. And he didn't like tell me anything like specific. So I don't know like any secrets or anything like that. But well, there are actually books you can read the secret rituals of the OTL. You know, so there's 11. Uh, 11 grades and each one has different type of magical workings you're supposed to do to ascend and go up these initiatory grades. Yeah, I believe the main draw for people doing this type of, uh, especially the OTO, is they get dragged into that Philema nonsense thinking that they can like... It all stems from them not wanting this cut and dry morality. Yes. So they have this other deity, Thelema, who kind of like. It's really hard to wrap your mind around because it's like there is morality, but then there isn't, and then you make it up, and then there's something special in that. It, 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 it's really like make it up as you go type stuff. And that. Well, explain, explain Thelema because that's, that's Alistair Crowley's sort of. But was he fallen angel or something? No, no, no. Thelema was the name of his religion. That was the, what he called it. Thelema is a Greek word for will, right? Okay. And in Gematria, it equals 93. So, Agape and Thelema, both Greek words used in, in Gematria, is like a subset of the Kabbalah word. Words have numeric values, both equal 93. That's why you see 93s all the time. Clearly, people are chatting with each other. 93, 93, 93 is kind of like a shorthand for with that world should be the whole of the law and love under the law, love under the world. And in the book of the law, um, it's there's a statement saying, those who follow me shall be known as Thelemites, right? So that's what they call themselves. So based on Thelema. So 
So Thelema is his religion. Based upon didn't, didn't he claim to have? Didn't he claim to have like a divine um, conversations? All the time. Yeah, I mean, he was doing all kinds of astral travel and receiving books and talking to supposedly talking to entities and having you know paranormal experiences all the way from doing the Melon, the mage ritual in Bullskin in Scotland. So all kinds of his whole life was like that. Once he kind of got into magic, at least so he claimed. Um, there are you could dispute the claim. You could say that the Book of the Law came out of his subconscious. It, you know, it wasn't from an external source. Um, that his received books were the same, you know. But you know, he just had there was all kinds of strange things about him that that uh, you know he could have made up this whole this whole the whole notion of receiving the Book of the Law in 1904 could have been just uh, made up out of whole cloth by this 29-year-old guy traveling around the world with tons of money. So he was coming, actually, he had traveled through Egypt and had taken his wife, I think, to India. And then on the way back, that's when it happened. So he may have, uh, you know, it's pure speculation, he may have just been in Egypt and said, man, this is what I should do to really ascend. You know, because he'd come out of these battles with fellow occultists. So he had scrapped with his old Master McGregor Mathers, he had fought with WP8. So these guys were elbowing. So how can he come up with, you know, this trump card that would solidify his uh, status at the top? It's, that, was, that was his ambition to be the top. How could he do that? Well, I'll just make up this whole mytho religio poetic thing of receiving a book in 1904, and I'll just write and scribble in shorthand, and it'll be mysterious. And, you know, that, that's an argument. There was a counter-argument that it came from somewhere else because there was all kinds of numerical codes that Crowley said proved that it came from something else much smarter than him, which was the fact that the 31 was divisible, you know, it was uh, 93 divided by 3, right? Uh, it's 31, and that's integrated in there, and he claims it's not something that he would have known, which, you know, some people can take as also an invention. So, you know, I think that... There is a shout, but if you look at this whole thing, he's right, you know, he's writing these magical texts, he's, he's talking to, I mean, the, the, the real giveaway is this lamb picture, the picture of lamb is like, how did he know that? How is he part of the alien phenomenon? How is he part of the UFO phenomenon in 1918? What do you think that is? What do you think the reason for that is? Well, I mean, I think that, uh, I think that these guys are all the people that are having parallel experiences. That's what they covet. That's why they're sorcerers. Yeah, I mean, he didn't. I mean, once you really dig into Crowley, the amount of, like, I guess you could say luck that he had and the prestige that he had, and it was just general lasting, like, influence, coupled with everything that he taught, in my opinion, proves that he was, like, the freaking mouthpiece for either a, like a demonic entity or the freaking actual devil. And well, he said that. I mean, he said he wanted to become his chief of staff, right? So he had this ambition to be that from a very early age. He wrote about that in his confession, and he called himself the prophet of the new aeon. That's why my first book was called Prophet of Evil, because I think Crowley's evil, and that was his idea is to be this thing. And we know. From the Bible, there's false prophets and all these other things. Well, and there's other people, there's other gurus or cultists who have, you know, 
uh, you know, who claim that they're receiving something from somebody else. He's received books, whether it's Marianne Williamson. Do you know Marianne Williamson's Course in Miracles? They find out, say that it's received from something. Well, who was, where's it being received from? Oh, yeah, you see that a lot, and definitely, I'm sure you've probably read uh, Messengers of Deception by Jacques Fallot. That's kind of like the go to book I would, you know, for anyone, kind of like, it's like a gateway into like realizing how a lot of these new age religions are obviously like, you know, satanic at their core. Right. What really freaks a lot of people out is the uh, Alistair Crowley, Crowley alien thing. Because, in a way, you know, the whole ancient alien phenomenon has turned into a triple religion. Right. And you could honestly credit him with initiating it. And it's... So he's even influential in places that you think he would be far removed from. Because people who are super into the, the ancient alien stuff, they're, of course, going off a very materialistic worldview. And like showing them that that worldview had a you know roots in someone like Alistair Crowley, Satanist. But they were, if you want to have a bad day, go look. I think it's called Meeting in the Desert. There's this thing that happens in the desert every year, and I'm looking at all these people. I'm like, that's an occultist. That's an occultist. What's Peter Lavenda doing there? And the supposed alien thing. The guy who, who wrote Communion had a connection to the Process Church. Like he was oh, he what? Yeah. He was, he was hanging out with the people who passed this church before they got kicked out of England. So a lot of people don't know that. They don't know. I, didn't know. I mean, I read the meeting. I didn't know yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. What's the guy's name? If you... Uh, I did an interview with Jason Horsley, who's written about that. I can't remember the name of the book, but it's on my podcast. Highly recommend it. He did an investigation. This guy has a very suspicious background and it's not like he was he was just some dude from texas he was a guy who was in that crowd the indica bookstore john lennon crowd in the 60s right so i can't remember his name what's the what's the author's name with meaning can you remember his name yeah it was streber streber yeah and if you talk to streber streber's also interested in the paranormal right so yeah. he also does other things not just the so-called visitation by the aliens and then if you start going into these stories I, I interviewed a guy by the name of M.J. Benias, and these guys are also having other, they're not just having alien things, they're talking to people who have already passed away, they, these people are like, more sensitive, they have like a thinner, you know, they're just like people who have paranormal experiences happen to them, not just the alien mythos, you know? It's yeah, that's a very, very common theme, yeah. and the common theme through all of it is I'm sure everyone's picked up by now, is that a lot of these things, you know, people from Whitley Strieber to, as you said, the people who will talk to both aliens and ghosts and whatnot, they're all making up these mythologies as they go, and the mythologies are, you know, serving as kind of like a, uh, for them, a replacement to Christianity. Like, they have to create a religion yeah. and science of it. Yes. And a book I recommend is The UFO People, A Curious Culture by M.J. Benias. would be a good interview, too, because... Oh, he's the... Okay, I know who you're talking about. You know, yeah. P-A-N-I-S. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the thing about Whitley Strieber that was kind of surprising, you brought all this up, is... I don't know if you listened to the interview that uh, we did with Ken Amy uh, like a week ago. We talked about a lot of, like, the pop 
uh, I guess you would call them Bible conspiracy theorists, who they base all their conspiracies and theories on the Bible, so they're Christian-based, but a lot of them have a tendency to take the whole Nephilim stuff and, in my opinion, go away from Scripture and create all kinds of crazy nonsense. But one of those guys had had a kind of connection with Whitley Struber in that he had somehow actually convinced Struber that the common extraterrestrial view on aliens was false and that it was all a diversion led by, you know, supernatural demonic forces to get us, you know, worshipping them and turning away from God. And Struber had actually literally been convinced of that at this point. And it kind of surprises me that he would go the other way. I'm not sure what his religious stance is. Do you know anything about that? Because it seems like he's on down. I don't know. Now, the process church, can you elaborate on that? That he was involved in? Oh, uh, uh, Whitley Streetler? Yeah. No, I just know through my research that I have to go back and find that thing. But he was back in the 60s. And, I mean, he was, you know, he was a fiction writer, right? Yeah. Before he wrote communion, which is supposedly a non-fiction, right? Yeah. So now, that is a process church. I, I know it's something occult-related. It's a book I would recommend, or you can have this guy as an author because he goes into Streamer's background and some of the suspicious things about it. The book's name is Prisoner of Infinity, Social Engineering, UFOs, and the Psychology of Fragmentation by Jason Horsley, H-O-R-S-L-E-Y. And... Uh, I mean, he actually writes excellent books, but that's one I would definitely recommend going into the whole narrative mythology of, you know, the kind of UFO thing. But, uh, yeah, let me go find it. Yeah, he wrote Wolf in the Hunger. Let me see, where was he? Yeah, see, he was educated at the London School of Film Technique, graduating in 1968. So he was in the London area. The Process Church is an offshoot of Scientology. The people who started it were Scientologists, and they, you know, they either, uh, uh, you know, had some problems with it, but they started basically their own kind of small little cult. And those who had very strange theology, but they were in contact with what they called the beings, you know. They were supposedly in contact with other, you know, non-paranormal things, too. So it just gets, and once you start, when you go through Esalen, you talk about some of these guys at Stanford Research Institute, they're all, they're all in communication. They think they're in communication. Somebody's talking to them from some other place, man. So, well, something here, I just looked it up on Wikipedia, and I don't know how uh, accurate it is or up to date it is, but it says Whitley Strieber is currently a practicing Catholic. So I'm assuming his, you know, uh, perhaps he kind of like understood the manipulation that was unfolding and got away from it. I would really like to know, maybe get him on and talk about that. I don't know if he would come on because he's, you know, so be like, Pretty big these days, but I don't know. I can tell you one thing: I'm gonna wrap this up in five minutes. So if you guys want to, yeah, yeah, yeah. You guys are freaking me out with all this stuff, but I want you to freak me out a little bit more. We got about five minutes, so I want you to tie all this into nine eleven. You wrote a book about uh, numerology and, and and all this stuff, occultism, sort of having an influence over over uh, the terrorist attacks on nine eleven, didn't you? 
Well, they assume, yeah, right. So I think that they're, you know, the, the government story isn't really believable. But, uh, yeah, I mean, if you read my book, if you go through and just understand Crowley's kind of numerology, it's, it's interspersed throughout the entire event. And uh, it shows, so I think it shows you exactly what the real event was, uh, you know, tying even back into the beginning of our conversation with Arthur C. Clarke and uh, Stanley Kubrick's 2001. You know, it was all timed, all carefully executed. So, by the way, not, not, to, not to spoil your book, and we'll definitely uh, plug your books here in a second, as many as you want. I've got had one on the screen the entire time for, uh, for the video watchers. We've got uh, Children of the Beast, Alistair Crowley's Shadow Over Humanity that you can get on Amazon. You can get all of uh, William Ramsey's books on Amazon without uh, without uh, spoiling your, your 9-11 book. What, what was the purpose of 9-11 from an occult perspective? Well, just like Nick Bramley would say, to facilitate change in conformance with will. It's really about what change people wanted and what, what was their will. What did they really want to do? What's the goal? You know, and I think that that, I think they were... Incredible. It was a large-scale ritual. Two thousand people died, so that that would that would be big change. Yeah, I mean, I look at what happened after nine eleven. You had uh, global wars. You had all kinds of fake terrorism. You had new legal things such as the Patriot Act. Even worse, you had uh, massive uh, change in wealth transfers of seven trillion dollars through the military-industrial complex. You had a structured. Um, financial crisis in 2008 that was intended. You had a pumped and dumped economy. Oh, yeah, just immense things, cultural change, everything. Hey, that's, I, I'm, I'm, I'm big on the cultural aspect of all that cultural Marxism, the slow, slow march through academia, all that stuff. And that, to me, that's when I look at 9 11 and when I look at the post 9 11 world, I see a, a huge move towards, uh, towards a more progressive, more, uh, uh, more sort of. Uh, socialist dynamic in the West, but that doesn't really touch on occultism. That, that's really, well, you'd be surprised. I mean, look at David Rockefeller. He wrote his thesis on Fabian socialism, the slow incremental change that takes place to sort of call, to get to uh, end of the goal. And that's Gramsci's idea of the battle through the institutions, right? So you kind of have these ideas from the left or from flat-out communism, socialism, but can somebody integrate those ideas to a different end, right? To a more occult uh, worldview. If you read Prophet of Evil, which I recommend you do, you can see what Crowley's idea, I mean, Crowley had ideas on the ideal uh, social state, right? He was a, a, basically a person who believed in feudalism. He believed that an intelligent uh, aristocracy should, should rule over a poisoned, dumbed-down people who have the quiet wisdom of cattle. Right, so yeah, I always say that the um, that the that, that the West is in a spiritual battle against the against the the strong pull of envy. You know, envy is the, the envy of man is what creates the the need for socialism and communism. The idea of the, of this uh, universal equality that really and the only way it's achievable is through force. And to achieve, it's basically a, it's a fantasy. It's a mirage on a road of blood, because I never really get there. The iron law of uh, oligarchy has has been a, a part of communism from the beginning. They're always just a groups of people running everything who have the, you know, so I think that, and you're right though, I believe it is envy. I think if you talk to the average person on socialism, they feel like somebody else got something they should, they want, and they got it through uh, 
sure means that way. I'm sure means it. Yeah, I'm sure means like they structured it. And you can kind of see their, their ideas come out. I, I don't believe that. That's kind of why I'm never going to be a socialist or a communist. I don't, I don't believe in equality. I don't believe exactly. That. Yeah, there's because the only way to achieve it, even temporarily, is through brute force. And I don't want equality. I honestly don't. Like, like I'm a terrible musician. I can't play anything. I like to go watch musicians or hear them pay money to play because I like their skill. I want to go see the best athletes. I don't have a problem with that. I'm not trying to strive for unnecessary quality. Some people work harder too. Some people are working six days. It's, it's not just it, 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 it's not just trust fund babies that get everything handed to them. Oftentimes the trust oftentimes the trust fund babies are the worst. The the work you know they, they have no skills at all because they they didn't have to fight or work for anything. Right. Like, so true. The families aren't static, man. A lot of preservation of wealth in families is actually very dark. Yeah, very difficult. So, anyway, I got to run, guys. Thanks right. so much. Yeah. Uh,